This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Inglis, number one in its field. We all remember the headlines created by the AJC when they decided to grant Gay Waterhouse a Metropolitan Trainer's Licence in 1992. Sixteen years earlier, with very little fanfare, another determined female won her battle to become the first accredited holder of an AJC Metro Trainer's Licence. Betty Lane had to earn her stripes by going bush. She was granted a trainer's licence under the jurisdiction of the WDRA and later the CWRA. She set up shop at a little place called Geary and won three Western Trainers Premierships. The next time she applied for a Metro licence, the committee could hardly say no. And so in 1976, Betty Lane and her then-partner Tiger Holland arrived from Geary with six horses and rented some boxes at Kingsford. Betty is long retired. She lost Tiger ten years ago, but she still lives in the eastern suburbs and has a million memories to share with us on the podcast today. Betty Lane, it's a delight to catch up. Thank you, John. Your story starts in childhood when you and your brother both had ponies which you kept at stables owned by your maternal grandfather, Jim Mutton. Where were those stables, Betty? Um, in William Street, Randwick, which is a little street. Um, it's only about 50 metres from the race course. Well, Jim Mutton was a trainer. He dabbled a little bit yes. with thoroughbreds and he had some success. Yeah, he was an average trainer. He wasn't a a real battler, and he wasn't a top notcher. Hmm. He was about in the middle of the road. He got, I suppose, he got maybe fraction less than his share, but he, he got quite a few winners. He did quite well. Well, you and your previously brother. Previously, he'd been, sorry, previously he'd trained in Melbourne for some years before he came to Sydney, but that was long before I was born. Yes. Well, you and your brother would ride those ponies around Centennial Park, and as you got a little gamer, and I find this hard to believe in 2018 you would ride those ponies across the Harbour Bridge and <laughs> all the way up to Brookvale Showground. Imagine doing it today. Yes. I've ridden over the Harbour Bridge a couple of times. Um, I had a cousin up in the North Shore and my, my mother had picked a horse out that wanted to deliver it to them. So mm. to deliver the horse from she'd bought for them at Randwick up to the Pimble, I think it was, it was across the bridge. So he didn't get a float. She said, okay, Betty, you can ride their horse across. Mm. And in the Harbour Bridge, there are little gaps we can see down to the water. I think they're for expansion gaps. Mm. And this pony dumped every one of them. He'd walk mm. along, oh, whoop, and over yeah. when you could see the ocean. So yeah. I've ridden over the Harbour Bridge a few times. You played uh, polo cross. You tried your hand at show jumping. Yes, yes, did both. And how did you rate yourself? Mm-hmm. Played with a team called Karingai. Yeah, I competed the show a few times, quite a few times. At the Sydney Royal? Yes. Mm-hmm. Betty, in your early 20s, you had but one ambition, and that was to become a horse trainer. You took the it- unprecedented step of applying to the AJC committee for a licence, and then you had to front that licensing committee. It was frightening, and you've never forgotten it. Describe <laughs> it to me. Okay. Well, I was a bit naive, I guess, because I didn't realise. I was brought up with my brother, and he 
he and I were sort of equal. I was never told I couldn't do anything because I was a girl. So yeah, I phoned up to them and I put the application in and I went up to the licensing committee and to me at that time they seemed very ancient members. I guess they weren't and I think they all had room spectacles on. Uh, I think there were six of them around a horseshoe-shaped table and when I walked in they all stood up and when I sat down, they stood until I sat. Mm. They said, yes, Miss Lane, I understand you wish to be a trainer. I said, um, could you explain? So I explained. I gave all my reasons and all my credentials and what have you. And they listened very politely, perfect manners. And when I finished, a spokesman, Bader Yates, stood up and said, thank you, Miss Lane. We do not license women. Good day. <laughs> just, like, just like that And I tell you, perfect manners They all were so I had to leave That was it, I was dismissed So as I walked out, they all stood up again And say perfect manners And company the perfect dismissal But that was it, they did not yeah. license women Betty, you mentioned a name there That will ring a bell for the old timers Listening to us today Bailey mm-hmm. Yates I had no idea uh, he was in any other administrative role other than his job as AJC starter. He was a very, very famous uh, race starter at Randwick and Warwick Farm in those days. That's right. When I was a kid, he was the starter. Now, he was also on the licensing board, apparently. I, run, it's, I forget so many things these days, John, but I will not forget that man's name. Yes. Well, but, your first licence was granted by the WDRA, and you yes. nominated a little horse called Delville Chief for a race yes. at Wellington. Now, you turned up with the horse. You thought everything was in order, and then you got the shock of your life when the steward, who later became the chairman of AJC Stewards, Mr Jim Meehan, approached you and said that you weren't legitimately licensed. <laughs> That's right. That was my first starter. I, had, I was naive. I knew little about the rules and regulations of racing out there. And I hadn't realised there were two racing associations. There was the Western Districts mm. Racing Association and the Central Western Districts Racing Association. Mm. Well, I'd set up stable a little hamlet called Geary, just on the eastern side of Dubbo. Yeah. And apparently the borderline of the two associations was Dubbo. Mm. Well, okay, I'd become licensed in the Western Districts, which was Dubbo and farther out. And then Wellington, where I had my first starter, was in the Central West. Mm. So, so I didn't know. So I just bowled up and Jim Mean was the steward. Mm. And something about it, sitting there, talking about who or what. And, you know, I said, I'm, he said, I'm sorry, sorry, no, we don't license women. I said, I am already licensed. Mm. He sort of looked at me dumbfounded. Did he? Yeah. Because there are no women, that, there are no women in either association. I said, no, I'm already licensed. And he sort of looked at me and thought, he said, oh, well, I suppose. <laughs> and I said, I explained that I'd set up stables in his area. Yeah. And I'd have to, he said, oh, well. He sort of thumbed an art a little bit. And he said, oh, well, I suppose we'll have to transfer you. So they transferred mm. my licence there yeah. and that was it. And he let, he let you start Delville Chief on the day too. Yes, he did. And my great expectations <laughs> didn't come, he didn't really ran third. Yeah. Yes. Well, Betty, you mentioned Geary, that little town way out west where you bought a property, a tiny little place, only one acre, and yes. you, you told me on the phone the other day you had a very limited bank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, what, yes. what was very. on that one acre when you moved in? What was on oh, that one acre? Well, there were a couple of sheds and a fibro garage. Goodness me. 
Okay, that was it. And I decided that I knew racing, I knew how precarious racing can be. And I had decided that what I could not afford to pay cash for, I would do without. Yeah. I think I paid £500 for the property, which just about broke me completely. Mm. So then I had a couple of sheds there um, turned into stables and a bit of a fibro place served as a bit of a sort of a bathroom thing. They bought an old plywood caravan and that was it. Yeah. Oh, so I explained to you also, a week or two previously, I'd met Tiger, Tiger Holland, my husband, yep. later to be husband, mm-hmm. about 12 months previously in Sydney. I'd spoken to him for about 10 minutes. His brother had introduced us mm-hmm. down the bullring near English sale yard. I'd had riding a horse around there we'd met. Mm-hmm. And Tiger was on his way to Melbourne. Well, apparently, he was battling a bit. He was from a failed marriage. He was trying to get some money together. And he'd gone down to Melbourne hurdle riding. Okay, he had a fall, so he got over that. He had a second fall, and so that was it. He'd come back to live in Dubbo. And then I met him again. He sort of said, I'll, oh, I'll help you along for a little while, Betty. I can't do much. I've got a broken knee, but I can pot roll along. So I started up at Geary, and he sort of helped me a little bit. And a little bit of time, a few weeks, developed into a lifetime. Later on, we were married. Oh, and, and you became a, a more formidable partnership than Fred and Ginger. It was a partnership. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. I, tiger, I mean, he was my husband, and also he's my sort of partner in training. He's also my very best friend. Yeah. And he's always there with me, for me. Betty, you were one mile from the little Geary race course, and that's where you had to work the horses. You and Tiger rode all the work. I presume you saddled up at home and rode them to the track. Yes, yeah. We'd ride. Um, I did have a little one-horse trailer, but I didn't use it that. Only when we were race meeting with one horse. No, we'd ride one horse and lead one over mm. when we had a couple of horses, two or three horses. Um, as we got a few more horses, had to make two trips. I bought it at land, which is a mile from the race course, simply because that's all I could afford. Yeah. And I think that's about all that was available. Mm. And that was the fact that it was a mile from the race course, which was one bit over kilometre and a bit. It meant that we had to walk the horses, whether I liked it or not, come hail, rain or frost or whatever. Mm. We rode them and it was good for the horses to have that nice warm-up walk beforehand, before they worked. So, Now, Betty, your well, first real owner was a man called Les Gibson, whom I got yes. to meet a couple of times later on. Some yes. years earlier, Les had raced Kingster who was the very first by the great sire Star Kingdom to race in Australia. He won the Breeders' Plate of 1954, and later on he won a Cox Plate. Les Gibson never left Narromine, and you were at a picnic race meeting out there one day where Les had a runner, and Tiger, who was your greatest fan, never stopped telling Les Gibson at that picnic race meeting what a great trainer you were. Yes, that's right. That's right, isn't it? In fact, Les had a horse there, a horse named Ooze. I had one, come in, just backtracking a little bit. I had my one and only paying customer. I had my own horse in the stable, and at this stage I had one and only paying customer, a picnic race horse named Oosley Lad. Mm-hmm. And I started him at Dubbo Picnics, and he won. And on the strength of that win, Tiger fronted up to Les Gibson and said, I'll bet who had a runner there that had run, I think, last or something, and his Les's studmaster was training it. So Tiger fronts up to Les Gibson and said, Betty can improve that horse. And Les said, okay, take it. <laughs> <laughs> he, had a, 
he had only put it in to support the race club and he didn't want his stud master fiddling around training race horses. So I said, take, so I only had the one horse trailer float, so with the horse I'd had, I put him on flat out back to Geary, put him in his box with his feet and raced back to get my next paying customer. He was yeah. the lad from Les Gibson. <laughs> and that developed into a very, very good long relationship. And I had a lot of good horses for Les Gibson. He stayed with me all the time I was there. But during your time at Geary, you had a young apprentice by the name of Pat Webster, who was, oh, yes. who was on this very podcast last week. Yes. Pat came from Inverell and he lived at your place and Tiger taught him to ride. That's correct. He came across, I think he was 13, not quite 14. His mother had died only a matter of, or I'd say, a few weeks beforehand. And his father came to us and told me the story and what had. And he said, the boys, he said, my little boys, all he wants to do is be a rider, wants to be a jockey. So I said, okay, bring him down. So Pat came to us. I think <laughs> he won't deny this, but his age had been put up a year or two. Mm-hmm. So he was with us, and Tiger taught him to, well, he could ride a little bit. He could ride quite well, but Tiger coached him along and taught him what have you. Mm-hmm. And we went across, God, I forgot where the race meeting was. Do you remember? Galgong. Galgong, thank you, John. <laughs> yeah. We went across um, to this race meeting this day, and we'd set it up, the horse that had a fair chance of winning for Pat to ride, but Pat knew nothing about it. So we took him across, and the float and the horses, and when we, Tiger was riding, when Tiger went to the jockey's room, he said, come on, kid, you're coming with me. <laughs> Pat sort of looked at him. <laughs> Tiger had taken another pair of uh, silks and things and boots and everything along the gear for Pat. So Pat was suddenly going to be a rider, and he it won. That was lovely for Pat. That mare was called Valley Royal. That's right. Yes, that was correct. Now, Betty, later on, as we know, Pat transferred to Bernie Burns at Randwick, but you yes. caught up with him some time later when you decided to bring one of Les Gibson's horses to Canterbury for what looked to be a suitable race, a horse called London Rep. You carted the horse down yourself in that little one-horse trailer. You, uh, you excuse didn't... me, but then I had a two-horse trailer. Oh, you know, great. Okay, you... still there, yes. <laughs> That's good. But you, you didn't know any Sydney jockeys other than Pat Webster. So you got Pat to ride London Rep at Canterbury and yes. Les Gibson had a pretty good bet on the horse. He had a big bet on it. He backed him down from hundreds down to about twelves, I think. Mm. And when the horse, it was a, he had a horse we'd had a lot of trouble with and I'd set him for this one race. And I'd said to Les, have a good go at him. Um, he had a bit of a suspect knee and I thought, I didn't know how long I'd have the horse for, but anyway... The announcer, I don't know whether it was you, maybe it was you, <laughs> no. as he went past the post, he said, London Rep, I have never, ever heard of him. Anyway, he won. <laughs> Betty, I, it wasn't me. I wouldn't say that oh, about okay. a horse from Geary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you applied again for your AJC licence. This time you got it and you yes. arrived from Geary with six horses and you found some stables at Kingsford. So again, you had to float them to the track. Yes. Uh, do you remember there's a trainer from Jack O'Sullivan with his stables? Oh, I certainly do. Mm. Yeah, Jack, and, um, Jack was a successful trainer and he'd been a he, great jockey. He rode a Melbourne Cup winner, Hallmark, in the 1930s. Oh, you have good memory, yes. Now, well, Jack had 
toned down. He had the stables. I think he had 10 boxes there at Kingsford. And he'd toned down. He only had a few horses in the work. So I was able to have six stables. He, got, he rented me six boxes. Because boxes, as they're still stables, are still they're at a premium at Randwick. Very, very difficult. Mm. But I was there for about 12 months, floating from Jack's stables to the race course every morning. But I was, it, it didn't worry me. I was accustomed to travelling from the country. And after 12 months... I put an application in because stables were being allocated on the course. Mm. And the AJC gave me a block of stables of 20 boxes. In Doncaster Avenue? Yes, in Doncaster Avenue. Yep, which had been occupied previously by the respected trainer Frank McGrath. That's right, trainer Peter Pam. Yeah. And uh, the late Ken Howard, my tutor... And my idol lived about three doors away in Doncaster Avenue. That's right. Not when I was there, but I knew that they pointed out to me the house where he lived. Yes. Yeah. He was there. Well, Betty, you Quite and Tiger. Oh, it mm. was, yeah. <laughs> you, you and Tiger had a lot of fun with that new licence of yours. And let's look at some of the horses you had. Do you know you had six runners over the years in the Golden Slipper? That's an yes. interesting bit of trivia. Now, the first yes. of them, Betty, was Smokey Jack, who flew home to run second to <laughs> Manicato in the 1978 Golden Slipper. Mick Dittman rode him, and he had something to say to you when he got off. Oh, yes. Um, when he got, well, he'd never been on the horse. He was a bit, you know, I was still a bit of an unknown, of course, in Sydney. And Mick was hadn't long been in Sydney himself, but I knew what a good rider he was. He'd ridden for me them. At Orange a few times, and I thought he's a brilliant rider, and I got him. Mm. But he'd never been on the horse's back until he was legged up in the enclosure. It was the first time he'd run the horse, and so he went out, rode the horse. And when he came back, the horse flew in the straight. Mick pulled him out, and he was flying. He was gaining half a length in every, every stride on the winner. Mm. Anyway, he got off Mick said, I was so sorry, Betty. If I'd known he's that good, I'd have hooked him out earlier. So mm. that was it. Well, Betty, if he'd known, he, you know, that's one slipper we could have won. But then again, great winner was Manicato. Mm. So it would have been hard. But we would have been, had Mick pulled him out earlier. Mm. And yet I still think without Mick, we might not have run second. Yeah, that's a good Gotten point. Been the place without him. I've watched that replay many times, Betty, and there's no mm. doubt another two or three strides, he would have made it very interesting, Smokey Jack. I think I'm sure he would have, because he was gaining nearly half a length every stride. Manicata mm. was tiring, and Mick was driving Smoky Jack. I wouldn't like to have been Smoky Jack's ribs afterwards. <laughs> For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most dealings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. You know, two or three years after Smokey Jack, you got hold of a very good filly called Belle Tattoo. She won yes. the Jim Crack Stakes by five and a half lengths with Johnny Marshall up. She yes. ran second in the Silver Slipper. You yes. took her to Melbourne. She ran second in the Meribyrnong Plate. Mm -hmm. And then the following autumn, she ran fourth in the Slipper and second in the AJC Sires Produce Stakes. Later in her career, Betty, she won a race at Warwick Farm one day ridden by Beaver Schofield. 
Mm-hmm. You recall that? that? You'd okay. forgotten that? No. <laughs> My memory is not terribly good. Yeah, go, go, carry on, yes. She was a classy filly, very, very good filly. Yes, she was. She's a brilliant filly. Um, you probably realise that she was rated as the best two-year-old filly of the year in Sydney. Mm. Yeah, well, you can't argue with that. Mm. No, she was good. Timothy was one of yes. the nicest horses you trained. He won nine races uh, overall with 11 placings. Now, as a yes. two-year-old Betty, again, I'll tickle your memory here, he won the okay. Skyline Stakes with Wayne Harris on board. Yes. He then ran fourth in the Pago Pago, fourth to Rory's Jester in the Golden Slipper and was just behind the place getters in the Sires Produce Stakes. And he raced on, didn't he, after that? Oh, he was good. He, um, the thing is, he did have a bit of a setback at one stage. He was out, had to go out spelling, and he was at the Prince's Farm, which was then owned by John Singleton. Now, when it was time to come back from the spell, we sent the float up, and they rang me and said, look, this horse is lame. Mm. I said, oh, gosh, you know. So put him on the float, sent him back anyway. To this day, they don't know what happened or how, whether it happened just then. So when he came back... He was lame, and the vet said he had a cracked hip. Now, nobody knew how it happened. Mm. I mean, another horse could have kicked him in the paddock or anything, but we got him right, and we sent him back out. Well, to John Seaton's credit, he was so upset about it that it happened on his place. He put him in his own special uh, box where he had his own champion horses. Mm. Anyway, he came back and kept on winning, went well. Oh, he certainly did. He came back as a three-year-old. He ran second in the San Domenico. He mm-hmm. won the up-and-coming. And then we're talking about a horse called Timothy, by the way. Later yes. in his career, he won five welter-class races. Mm-hmm. He was a yeah. great money spinner for the stable. No, he was a good horse. He's very good. Hey, I'll tell you something. I must be getting sent. I think that was Nixon, not Timothy, but John Singo. I think I was wrong. Oh, Timothy wasn't hurt. No, he was Nixon. Sorry. That's all right. Well, I'm about to, I'm about to bring Nixon up. Uh, he, he won at Randwick. Yeah, he won at Randwick as a two-year-old with Malcolm mm. Johnston on board. Yeah. He, he ran second in the Dulcify quality, second to Bozam in the spring champion stakes. Hey, uh, hang on. He beat Bozam. Well, I couldn't find that, Betty. Yeah, he did. Okay. I'll check it. I'll check it was it, at Randwick one. it was at Randwick one meeting. He did beat Bozam once. Yeah, it wasn't I mean, in a group the... race. No, no, it was just an ordinary race at Randwick, I think. Yeah, Bozam beat him in the spring champion stakes, and he flew that day, Bozam. But then yeah. Nixon went on to win a listed race over a mile. He won a 2,000-metre race at Randwick, and he won a Parramatta Cup at Rose Hill with Kevin Moses on board. That's right, yes. Mm-hmm. He used to race up near the lead, Betty. Sometimes he would lead himself. Yeah, but um, I just, yeah, well, yes, he, was, he could go anywhere. He was a good horse, very good horse. Now, what Plus, about? I think six, $6,000 he got. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Village Kid. Village, hmm? Not Village Kid, uh, village, village Lad. Lad. Village Lad, yes. Yeah, Village Kid was a champion pacer. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> but no, Village Lad won a lot of races, didn't he? Yes, he did. I think he won five in Sydney. Mm. He was um, he was a good country horse, and I brought him down. Um, now, he, I'm pretty sure he won five in Sydney. Now, Butterfly Star, 
Yes. Dittman won on him at Randwick one day by a huge margin. I've forgotten that one. Carry yeah, on. won a race by... Make allowances for me in my memory. <laughs> yes, I will, Betty. You're going pretty well. <laughs> now, I bet you remember this one, Rusklo. What oh, a, yes. What a good horse for the stable. He won 19 races in all, five That's in right. the city, and guess who rode him in one of those city wins? <laughs> None I don't other have to guess. <laughs> than Lester, Lester Pickett. Yes, that's and, right. And you've got a story about that. Well, Mick Ditton was going to ride him in that race. I had Mick booked. And the AJC rang me up and said, Oh, Betty, uh, Lester Pickett's riding that meeting. You know, can you put him on Rusklow? I said, Look, I've already booked Mick Dittman. And I thought, oh, Gosh, can't say no to the AJC. I said, Well, look, if you ring Mick, if he's willing to stand down, okay, I'm happy to put Lester Pickett on. But I'm not going to pull Mick off. Anyway, they rang up. Mick agreed. So it came the race day, and the great English jockey had lots of rides, lots of very good horses ride, but they all got beaten until the last race on Rusklow. And okay, sure enough, Rusko ups and wins. Well, I was the flavour of the month for the AJC. I was mm. so popular. <laughs> yeah. This great jockey had never won a, he'd won a race everywhere else throughout Australia in the main place. He'd never won at Randwick. And by the time the last had come, they weren't expecting him to win. And so when he won, it was, oh, please come up to the, you know, up. they all had up, have drinky drinks. So we all went up and had drinky drinks for the committee. Mm. And another thing of interest, the famous jockey's manager came to me and said, um, you realise, of course, that it's usual to give him an extra 5%. And I said, maybe so, but if anybody gets the extra 5%, it's going to be a bit different. So it was that. For standing down. Yes. Yeah. What are your memories of Piggott on the day, Betty? He, he didn't say much, did he? He never did. No, Paddy's hard of hearing. His hearing wasn't very good. Mm. No, I think he might have been a decent person. I don't. And he didn't say much at all. You, very quiet. You handed in your trainer's licence in 1992. And yes. Tiger continued on for another 15 or 16 years, and That's you right. acted as stable four-person. Now, during that time... Tiger got his hands on a nice little horse called Athelnoth. Yes. Mm-hmm. He it won a nice. Yeah, he won a nice race at Randwick. He was the best Tiger had had up to that time, I think. Uh, oh yes, he, I think it's the best he had right through. Really, he won. He won a lot of races with him. Did very, very well. It kicked off with him. We went well. I think he won. As you remember, Tiger was That's one of. One of racing's mm. great characters, Tiger Holland, and one of the best blokes I ever met in the industry, Betty. Nobody, and I mean nobody, had a bad word for Tiger Holland. Well, I'll tell you why. Tiger never ever had a bad word for anybody else. Yep. He's, if he couldn't say something good, he would say nothing. And you know, I used to you know, be cracking, so oh, I hate this, hate that. He'd say, you should never hate anything. Mm. And he was very genuine. Yeah. He was very genuine in that. He met it. Mm. Mm. Betty, no, I'm, I retired. Mm, sorry, on. no, you go on. <laughs> I'm going to say, when I retired, Tiger, I was getting a bit tired too. I've been training for you know, a long, long time, and Tiger had been my backstop. And he'd always deferred to me, and always whatever I said, he'd go along with. And I thought, I was tired. I thought I'll move aside, give him a go. So I did. I mm. retired, and he got the license. The way he went, mm. but um, I took things easy. Did nothing, playing bridge, just occasionally go to the stables. And after a few years, he had a swallowing problem. He was getting it 
his health wasn't terribly good. So mm. I sort of started coming back, uh, not completely, just a little bit in the background. Mm. And then one day at the races, he wasn't very well and he couldn't get in. I was there saddling up. And the lady on the gate stopped me from going in. I said, I have to go in because I'm Betty Lane. You know, very arrogant, very cheeky. <laughs> Sorry, you can't come in without a badge. I didn't have a pass. I just do it good. Most people knew me, and I'd just go to the race and saddle up and in and out of the, getting the saddle and what have you. But this lady stopped me. I said, well, I have to come in. No, I can't. So I went down to the AJC office. I thought I'd get a pass. There was nobody there whom I knew, so I went across to the detectives, and I told them. And I was ramping and raving. Mm. And they were saying, you know, calm down, Betty, calm down. Anyway, that incident was such that they, the detectives told the lady in the gate, you have to let her in. Yeah, so that was right. And they said, Betty, I think if you have any problems, you better get a, a license. I was be a foreman. I said, I'm not going to be a foreman. Mm-hmm. Very arrogant. <laughs> anyway, I, then I thought, Tiger's more important than my pride. So I took out a foreman's license when he wasn't well enough. And I sort of, in the background, just came back into it a little bit. Yeah. Betty, one of my fondest memories of Betty Lane uh, is something I witnessed several times out in the middle there of Randwick Racecourse, where all the trainers gather, many of them in the trainer's hut, uh, but not you. They watch their horses work from that point. You would ride a little skewball pony out to the middle and you would just sit there astride that pony until your horses had all finished working. Uh, you look very much like an Indian <laughs> chief. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A little fat skewball pony. What, what was his very name? Pickle. And he was very little. Very, um, <laughs> from the stable to the centre of the course, it's a fair walk. It be the best part of oh, one kilometre at least. Yes, yeah. So I, I thought I need a transport, I need a taxi. So um, I thought I'll go along and get a little, a little lead pony. I'd had a pony in the country, but when we came to Sydney, we couldn't – I didn't have the space for him. I needed every stable that I had. So I thought I'd get a little pony. But there was a space in the yard where I could put a bit of a shelter shed up and a little pony. Mm. So I went across to a horse sale. I think it was at Parramatta. I couldn't find a horse I wanted, a pony I wanted. And there's this one little one. Mm. So I'm not coming back to the sale again. Okay, he'll do. So I bought this little pony. <laughs> and he was a fancy, he was a terrific little taxi. I had him for years. You do anything with him. But I hadn't realised that some of the horses didn't like the colour of this little pony. Mm. They shied at him. If, you could tell if a horse was new to the track because if they spotted the pony, they allowed to shy because it, I got abused a few times. Not mm. often, just a few times. Yeah. But anyway, once the horses had seen him, they accepted him the next morning. It wasn't too bad. But I wouldn't have bought it if I'd realised the race horses wouldn't like the little coloured pony. But anyway, all was well. You know, you told me something on the phone recently that uh, amazed me, really. You said in all the years you were training horses at Randwick, you can't recall ever having trained a horse that cost more than $10,000. I don't think it was even $10,000. Well, all that does is make your strike rate look even more impressive. That's quite amazing. Well, I've never had any wealthy owners, really. Um. No, I didn't. I understand they were cheap. And that's how I used to go to Tasmania a bit and buy horses mm. after I was established a bit. And you'd only pay three or four thousand for horses down there and they all won races. Every horse I ever bought in Tasmania won. Yeah. 
Mm. I used to go down each year and buy a couple. Um, no, I never paid big money at all, very, very small money. Well, Betty, it's been an absolute treat having you on the podcast. All of those dozens of female trainers competing freely nowadays around New South Wales owe you a great debt of gratitude. You kept after that AJC committee until it recognised your talent and your yes. ability and your right to compete against men. Thank you, John. It's a different scene now, isn't it? It's different. I think the modern-day trainers wouldn't realise how hard it was for women back in those days, and the same with the girl jockeys. But anyway, they made it, and I made it, so all's well. <laughs> Lovely to chat, Betty. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. All the best. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. 